Hello and welcome to the August 2012 Respiratory Care Podcast. This is Dean Hess along with Sarah Moore. Sarah, let's get started with our first paper. Our first paper is Use of Adjunctive Aerosolized Antimicrobial Therapy in the Treatment of Pseudomonas aeruginosa and Acinetobacter baumani Ventilator-Associated Pneumonia by Arnold and colleagues. The objective of this study was to assess outcomes associated with adjunctive aerosolized antibiotics for the treatment of Pseudomonas aeruginosa and Acinetobacter baumani VAP. This was a retrospective single-center cohort study at Barnes-Jewish Hospital in St. Louis, Missouri. Consecutive subjects treated for bronchoalveolar lavage confirmed Pseudomonas aeruginosa or Acinetobacter baumani VAP between January 1, 2004 and December 31, 2009 were enrolled. Records of subjects treated with adjunctive aerosolized antibiotics were compared to those who did not receive adjunctive aerosolized antibiotics. 93 patients were evaluated. Patients receiving adjunctive aerosolized antibiotics were significantly more likely to be infected with multidrug-resistant bacteria and had a greater Apache 2 score compared to patients who did not receive adjunctive aerosolized antibiotics. Subjects who did not receive adjunctive aerosolized antibiotics experienced a shorter time from VAP onset to appropriate intravenous antibiotic initiation, but length of intravenous therapy was similar between the groups. The group that did not receive adjunctive aerosolized antibiotics demonstrated significantly shorter mechanical ventilation duration and ICU stay and hospital stay. However, Kaplan-Meier curves for the probability of 30-day survival from VAP onset demonstrated that patients receiving adjunctive aerosolized antibiotics had statistically greater survival. The authors concluded that patients with Pseudomonas aeruginosa and Acinetobacter baumani VAP may experience favorable survival when treated with AAA. Despite greater severity of illness and a greater incidence of multidrug-resistant infection, large randomized trials are needed to explore this therapy. Adjunctive aerosolized antibiotics have been recommended in the setting of gram-negative VAP, but little is known about their influence on clinical outcomes. Arnold et al. found that patients with gram-negative VAP may experience favorable survival when treated with adjunctive aerosolized antibiotics. As Moore and Mueller point out in their editorial, with the increasing prevalence of multiple drug-resistant organisms and a dearth of new antibiotics in development, prospective comparative effectiveness studies are needed to establish the utility of alternate administration methods such as aerosolization of colistin and aminoglycosides. Our next paper is by Berlinski and Willis. Its title is Survey of Aerosol Delivery Techniques to Spontaneously Breathing Tracheotomized Children. The authors hypothesize that practice modalities will vary among different institutions. The respiratory care departments in institutions in the United States that train pediatric pulmonologists were surveyed regarding their practices of delivering aerosols to spontaneously breathing tracheotomized children. Characteristics of the institution, use of meter dose inhalers, nebulizers and dry powder inhalers, use of a resuscitation bag to assist aerosol delivery, types of medication used, and factors affecting choice of delivery method were recorded. 
Of the invited institutions, 81% participated, with 68% of them being freestanding children's hospitals. MDIs were used by 92% of the institutions surveyed, with similar use of unassisted and assisted techniques. Nebulizers were used by 97% of the institutions surveyed, with all using unassisted and 32% also using assisted technique. Tracheostomy aerosol mask was the most commonly used interface. Assisted technique for either MDI or nebulizer was used by 68% of the institutions surveyed, with similar use of flow inflating bag, self inflating bag, and both devices. Types of inhaled medications utilized by surveyed institutions included aerosolized antibiotics, corticosteroids, short-acting beta agonists, combination therapy, and mucolytics. Dry powders were not used. Cooperation was the most frequent and single most important factor influencing the choice of delivery method. The authors concluded that wide variation in practice of delivering aerosols to spontaneously breathing tracheotomized children was noted. In vivo and in vitro studies are needed to support clinical recommendations. This study is important because, although aerosol delivery can be affected by several factors, no recommendations for device drug formulation choice are available. The authors found a wide variation in practice of delivering aerosols to spontaneously breathing tracheostomized children. In their editorial, Amarov and Newhouse recommend that pediatricians, respiratory therapists, aerosol scientists, otolaryngologists, and pulmonologists convene a focus group to establish evidence-based guidelines for aerosol therapy administration in this patient population. A prospective comparative trial of standard and breath-actuated nebulizer, efficacy, safety, and satisfaction, is by Arunthari and colleagues. This study compared the breath-actuated nebulizer to standard nebulizer with regards to efficacy, safety, and patient and respiratory therapist satisfaction. Adults admitted where nebulizer therapy was prescribed were enrolled. Patients were randomly assigned to either Aero Eclipse II breath-actuated nebulizer or a standard nebulizer and were surveyed at the completion of each treatment. Albuterol by breath-actuated nebulizer was at a dose of 2.5 milligrams or albuterol of 2.5 milligrams plus epitropium of 0.25 milligrams. Standard nebulizer delivered albuterol 2.5 milligrams or albuterol plus epitropium 0.5 milligrams. A respiratory therapist assessed each patient's heart rate, respiratory rate, and peak expiratory flow prior to and following treatment. Treatment time and adverse events were recorded. Each respiratory therapist was asked to assess his or her satisfaction with each of the nebulizers. 28 patients with a mean age of 69 years were studied. 54% of the patients indicated that overall the breath-actuated nebulizer was superior to conventional nebulizer therapy. 68% indicated that duration was preferable with the breath-actuated nebulizer. 
Respiratory therapists were more satisfied with the breath-actuated nebulizer based on overall performance, treatment duration, and ease of use. There were no significant differences in heart rate, peak expiratory flow, or respiratory rate before or after nebulization therapy with either device. The duration of treatment was significantly lower with the breath-actuated nebulizer. Additionally, the breath-actuated nebulizer was associated with a lower occurrence of adverse events. The authors concluded that patients and respiratory therapists express greater satisfaction with the breath-actuated nebulizer compared with the standard nebulizer. Pre- and post-treatment vital signs did not differ between groups, but use of the breath-actuated nebulizer was associated with a shorter duration and a lower occurrence of adverse events. This study is one of the first prospective comparative trials of standard nebulizers and breath-actuated nebulizers. Interestingly, the authors found that patients and respiratory therapists stated greater satisfaction with the breath-actuated nebulizer. Moreover, the breath-actuated nebulizer was associated with a lower occurrence of adverse events. In their editorial, Ari and Fink provide some interesting theoretical insights into the dose delivery for standard nebulizers and breath-actuated nebulizers. The reality of an intermediate type between asthma and COPD in practice is by Kim and colleagues. The purpose of this study was to investigate the reality of an intermediate type between asthma and COPD when diagnosed by physicians in Korea. The study involved 633 Korean patients with asthma, 157 with COPD, and 41 with an intermediate type. The latter group consisted of patients with clinically mixed or overlapping characteristics of asthma and COPD. The diagnoses were dependent on physicians' clinical decisions. The authors analyzed the clinical differences among the three groups. There were differences among the three groups in age, sex, ATP, and body mass index. Differences in smoking status, including percentages of current smokers, duration of smoking, and number of cigarettes smoked per day were also observed. Pre-bronchodilator FEV1, FVC, and FEV1 to FVC ratio decreased from the asthma group to the intermediate type group to the COPD group. Positivity of post-bronchodilator response, increase of FEV1, and post-bronchodilator FEV1 to FVC ratio also showed gradual patterns. For emergency department visits and hospital admissions, frequencies were lowest in the asthma group, higher in the intermediate type group, and highest in the COPD patients. The authors concluded that they have identified and characterized an intermediate type lying between asthma and COPD in clinical characteristics. Further investigations are required to determine whether the three conditions are part of the chronic obstructive airway diseases spectrum or are distinct clinical entities. Kim et al. explored the overlap between asthma and COPD. They found an intermediate type lying between asthma and COPD and clinical characteristics. As Tashkin points out in his editorial, since both asthma and COPD have overlapping clinical features, it is not surprising that some patients will be diagnosed with an intermediate type. The importance of distinguishing between asthma and COPD and identifying an intermediate type is that treatment approaches and prognosis may differ. 
estimated oxygen flow titration to maintain constant oxygenation by Lelouch and Lair. The authors developed a device, Free O2, which automatically titrates the oxygen flow delivered to spontaneously breathing patients with the aim of maintaining a stable SpO2. They evaluated this system in healthy subjects during induced hypoxemia. Hypoxemia was induced in 10 healthy subjects while breathing a gas mixture of variable FiO2. Each subject performed three hypoxemic challenges with an addition in random order of either air with constant flow at 1.5 liters per minute, oxygen with constant flow at 1.5 liters per minute, or automatic oxygen flow titration. Subjects were blinded to the intervention. Oxygen flow, SpO2, end tidal CO2, respiratory rate, and heart rate were recorded every second. The primary outcome was time of SpO2 between 92% and 96%. The SpO2 target of 92-96% to 96 was achieved 27.8%, 36.7%, and 67.4% of the time with air, constant oxygen, and automated oxygen titration, respectively. Severe oxygen desaturations were respectively observed 34.5%, 12.8%, and 2.3% of the time. Hyperoxia was present 6.1%, 37.1%, and 15.3% of the time. Tachycardia was present with air and with constant oxygen flow, but not while using automated oxygen titration. These results were obtained with a mean and maximal oxygen flow of 1.3 liters per minute and 7.6 liters per minute with the automated titration. The authors conclude that the system that automatically titrates the oxygen flow was more efficient at maintaining the SpO2 target while ensuring a significant reduction in the rates of severe hypoxemia and hyperoxia in comparison with air or constant oxygen flow. These beneficial results were obtained with less oxygen in comparison to a constant oxygen flow. These authors evaluated an automated oxygen flow titration device that they designed to maintain constant oxygenation. They evaluated the device in healthy subjects during induced hypoxemia and found that this system was more efficient in maintaining the oxygenation target and used less oxygen as compared to traditional constant flow oxygen delivery systems. Findings from the MATRIX study, a treatment protocol for the delivery of manual chest therapy in respiratory care, is by Cross and Ellender. This paper presents a treatment protocol used in a large randomized controlled trial examining the efficacy and cost-effectiveness of manual chest physiotherapy for patients hospitalized with exacerbations of COPD. Consensus development meetings with key physical therapists were held to identify the essential elements of manual chest physiotherapy, address potential areas of ambiguity, and provide a clear set of parameters within which treatment would be based and recorded. This iterative approach resulted in treatment protocol that combined best clinical practice with the research evidence available to date. In the management of exacerbations of COPD trial, 658 sessions of manual chest physiotherapy were delivered by physical therapists over a three-year period.
A high level of adherence to the treatment protocol was seen for all but one of the protocol elements. The authors concluded that the treatment protocol used in the MATRIX trial offers sufficient flexibility to the therapist while being robust enough to maintain clinical trial integrity. The level of adherence by therapists indicates its professional acceptability with respect to delivering and evaluating this therapy. One of the difficulties in comparing the numerous studies on manual chest physiotherapy is the wide variety of techniques used and terms employed to describe the intervention. Cross and Ellender conducted consensus development meetings to identify the essential elements of manual chest physiotherapy and to provide a set of clear parameters within which treatment would be based and recorded. They found that the treatment protocol that resulted offered sufficient flexibility flexibility to the therapist while being robust enough to maintain clinical trial integrity. Next we have the paper by Numako and colleagues, Seasonal Variability in Meteorological Factors, Retrospective Study of the Incidence of Pulmonary Embolism from a Large United Kingdom Teaching Hospital. The aim of the study was to investigate whether seasonal variation in the incidence of idiopathic pulmonary embolism exists and to investigate the relationship between atmospheric pressure, humidity, and temperature. A large retrospective study was conducted. All confirmed cases of pulmonary embolism over a nine-year period were included, except for those patients with a major risk factor for pulmonary embolism. Meteorological data were obtained from a local weather station. Days when there were at least one episode of pulmonary embolism were compared with days where there was no episodes of pulmonary embolism. There were a total of 640 episodes of pulmonary embolism. There was a statistically significant lower percentage of pulmonary embolism in spring compared with the rest of the year. The incidence of pulmonary embolism was related to decreased atmospheric pressure and increased temperature. For atmospheric pressure, the relationship was most significant for the mean atmospheric pressure for the two days preceding clinical presentation with pulmonary embolism. For temperature, the relationship was most significant for the mean temperature for the five days preceding clinical presentation with pulmonary embolism. The authors conclude that these results confirm the presence of seasonal variations in episodes of idiopathic pulmonary embolism and an association between decreased atmospheric pressure and increased temperature. These authors explored the seasonable variability and meteorological factors on the incidence of pulmonary embolism. Interestingly, they found an association between seasonal variations and episodes of idiopathic pulmonary embolism and decreased atmospheric pressure and increased temperature. The clinical relevance of these findings is yet to be determined. Technical assessment of spirometers connected in series is by Lefebvre and all. The aim of this study was to evaluate the accuracy of the practice of testing the accuracy of office spirometers when two are connected in series. Two sets of two spirometers connected in series were used, the pocket spiro, the micro loop, and the pocket spiro with the spiro scout. Different standard ATS curves were selected for both ambient temperature and pressure and body temperature and pressure saturated conditions and generated with a waveform simulator. They compared lung function indices recorded by the pocket spiro when it was placed respectively upstream or downstream in the assembly. 
In ATP conditions, lung function indices were generally higher when the spirometer was placed downstream rather than upstream. The observed deviations reached up to 10%. In BTPS conditions, lung function indices were underestimated when the spirometer was placed downstream as compared to the ATP procedure. The modification of flow characteristics and the temperature drop are the two mechanisms that could explain their results. The authors conclude that connecting spirometers in series gives variable results depending on the position of the spirometer in the assembly. Individual tests are therefore essential as results are not interchangeable. Some clinicians test the accuracy of office spirometers by comparing measurements made with two spirometers connected in series. Lefebvre et al. conducted a technical assessment of this practice. They found that the practice of connecting spirometers in series gives variable results and thus individual tests are necessary. Next is the paper, Pilot Trial of Spirometer Games for Airway Clearance Practice in Cystic Fibrosis by Bingham et al. Following interviews regarding recreational activities and subjects' practice of airway clearance therapies, the authors conducted a pilot trial of spirometer games in 13 adolescents with cystic fibrosis to test the hypothesis that games could increase subjects' engagement with forced expiratory breathing maneuvers and improve pulmonary function tests. After baseline PFTs, subjects were provided with digital spirometers and computers set up as game-only or control devices. Devices. After the first of two periods, each greater than two weeks, the computer was set up for the alternate condition for the second period. Interviews disclosed minimal awareness of airway clearance therapies among the pediatric cystic fibrosis patients. Subjects use games and control software a similar percentage of days during the game and control period. There was a trend towards more minutes within the game versus control setup. Gameplay showed no overall effect on FEV1, though correlation analysis showed a modest relation between minutes of play and change in FEV1 from baseline. The game period showed a trend to increased vital capacity. The authors concluded that the spirometer games elicit forced expiratory breath maneuvers in pediatric cystic fibrosis patients. Improvement in PFTs may be due to improved test performance technique, though improved obstructive restrictive lung function due to gameplay cannot be excluded. A formal clinical trial of this approach is planned. Because many children with cystic fibrosis adhere poorly to airway clearance techniques, Bingham et al. developed gaming technology that encourages forced expiratory maneuvers. They found that spirometer games elicited forced expiratory breath maneuvers in pediatric patients with cystic fibrosis. Whether or not this results in improved outcome deserves further study. Our next paper is Comparison of Maximal Inspiratory Pressure, Tracheal Airway Occlusion Pressure, and Its Ratio in the Prediction of Weaning Outcome, Impact of the Use of a Digital Vacuometer and the Unidirectional Valve by D'Souza and colleagues. The objective of this study was to determine the predictive value of the maximal inspiratory pressure obtained by a digital vacuometer and a unidirectional valve as to weaning outcome and to compare its performance with the ones of the respiratory drive under airway occlusion pressure at 0.1 second and the ratio of these measures. 
Patients receiving mechanical ventilation greater than 24 hours who fulfilled weaning criteria were prospectively enrolled. Measurements of MIP and airway occlusion pressure at 0.1 second were accomplished with a digital vacuometer with a unidirectional valve that only allows exhalation. Receiver operating characteristic curves were calculated to compare the predictive values of the indexes. The authors found that for every studied index, only a modest performance regarding prediction of weaning outcome. Of note, MIP obtained by a digital vacuometer and a unidirectional valve obtained better than that historically reported with conventional technique. D'Souza et al. compared maximal inspiratory pressure, tracheal airway occlusion pressure, and its ratio in the prediction of weeding outcomes by use of a digital pressure gauge and a unidirectional valve. Consistent with prior reports on weaning parameters, they found that every index they studied had only a modest performance regarding prediction of weaning outcome. Also consistent with prior research, they found that use of a unidirectional valve performed better than the conventional technique. Response to albuterol MDI delivered through an antistatic chamber during nocturnal bronchospasm is by Perpacarin et al. The objective of this study was to investigate the influence of reducing electrostatic charge on the bronchodilator response to albuterol inhaler during nocturnal bronchospasm. This randomized double-blind double-dummy crossover study included subjects 18 to 40 years old with nocturnal bronchospasm, FEV1 60 to 80 percent predicted during the day, and greater than or equal to 12 percent increase after albuterol. Subjects slept in the clinical research center up to three nights for each treatment. FEV1 and heart rate were measured upon wakening spontaneously or at 4 a.m. and 15 minutes after each dose of 1, 2, and 4 cumulative puffs of albuterol via meter dose inhaler. The drug was administered through an antistatic valved holding chamber or a conventional valved holding chamber containing a static charge. Of 88 consenting subjects, 11 were randomized and 7 completed the study. Most exclusions were due to lack of objective evidence of nocturnal bronchospasm. Upon awakening, FEV1 was 44% of predicted before the antistatic chamber and 48% of predicted before the static chamber. The increase in FEV1 after 1, 2, and 4 cumulative puffs using the antistatic versus the static chamber, respectively, were 52% versus 30%, 73% versus 48%, and 90% versus 64%. The point estimates for the differences between the devices, antistatic versus static, were 21%, 23%, and 25% for 1, 2, and 4 cumulative puffs, respectively. There was no significant difference in heart rate between treatments. The authors conclude that delivery of albuterol through an antistatic chamber provides a clinically relevant improvement in bronchodilator response during acute reversible bronchospasm, such as nocturnal bronchospasm. 
Although decreased electrostatic charge on valved holding chambers increases the amount of drug delivered, there are no previous data demonstrating that this increases bronchodilation. These authors found that delivery of albuterol through an antistatic chamber provided a clinically relevant improvement in bronchodilator response during acute reversible bronchospasm. These are important findings related to the delivery of inhaled bronchodilator. Our final original research paper this month is The Effect of Targeting Scheme on Tidal Volume Delivery During Volume Control Mechanical Ventilation by Volsko et al. The objective was to compare differences in volume control ventilation with set point and dual targeting. Two hypotheses were tested. Tidal volume delivery is different with volume control using set point versus dual targeting during active versus passive breathing and Volume control with dual targeting delivers tidal volume similarly to pressure support ventilation with active breathing. The Ingmar Medical ASL 5000 lung model simulated pulmonary mechanics of an adult patient with ARDS during active and passive ventilation. Resistance was standardized at 10 centimeters of water per liter per second and compliance at 32 milliliters per centimeter water. Active breathing was simulated by setting the frequency at 26 breaths per minute and adjusting the muscle pressure to produce a tidal volume of 384 milliliters. Volume control was initiated with the Puritan Bennett 840 for set point targeting and the Servo I for dual targeting at a tidal volume of 430 milliliters, mandatory rate of 15 breaths per minute, and PEEP of 10 centimeters water. During pressure support, cycle threshold was set to 30% and peak inspiratory pressure adjusted to produce a tidal volume similar to that delivered during volume control. Expiratory tidal volume was collected on 10 consecutive breaths during active and passive breathing with volume control and pressure support. The mean tidal volume difference varied among the targeting schemes. Volume control set point target difference of 37 milliliters, volume control dual target difference of 77 milliliters, and pressure support difference of 406 milliliters. Auto-triggering occurred during volume control set point with the active model. The authors concluded that dual targeting during volume control allows increased tidal volume compared to set point, but not as much as pressure support. Volsko et al. compared the effect of targeting scheme on tidal volume delivery during volume-controlled mechanical ventilation. Specifically, they compared volume-controlled ventilation with set point and dual targeting to pressure support ventilation using simulated active and passive breathing. They found that dual targeting during volume-controlled ventilation allows increased tidal volume compared to set point targeting, but not as much as with pressure support ventilation. This month we publish the 38th Donald F. Egan Scientific Memorial Lecture by Schrager and colleagues, Lessons from the Tip of the Spear, Medical Advancements from Iraq and Afghanistan, and the 27th Philip Kittredge Memorial Lecture by Rubin and Haynes, Myths, Misunderstandings, and Dogma in Respiratory Care. Our case reports are tidal volume variability during airway pressure release ventilation, inadvertent triggering of the ventilator caused by surgically placed pacer wires, and severe acute respiratory failure secondary to acute fibrinous and organizing pneumonia. 
Our teaching cases are acute management of the obstructed endotracheal tube and an unusual case of pulmonary embolism. To receive the contents of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues.